Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I am Ben, and I'm here today with my co-host, Derek. Hey, Derek. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. Good. This is this week has gone by super fast, it feels like. Mm, I agree. Yeah. Just last night, I was like, oh, my God, the podcast is tomorrow. I know. <laughs> it kind of shocked me. Yeah, I was me like, too. I better get some stuff done. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, I sent the uh, uh, pricing announcement for Hound to the rest of the customers. Yay. So it's gone out. Cool. So this is, that was your goal, right? Was to get, get was. everyone announced. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So now the secret is out and uh, the timer has begun on the actually doing the development work. Okay. So now the easy part begins kind of. Right. Or at least the, the fun in the zone part for yep. me. So has there been any um, negative feedback, positive feedback? Yeah, feedback I, got two, all? I got two quick emails from people that were like, this is disappointing. They weren't mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. And looking at the, like how they're using Hound, that's not surprising. Like right yeah. now the pricing optimizes for people who have like one repo and are fairly price sensitive. Right. And so we're changing away from that. And so people that are in that boat are going to be not happy with the new pricing. And mm-hmm. I, just, I just have to accept that. Right. I have this strong impulse to uh, seek acceptance and avoid uh, anger, which I yep. imagine is probably pretty natural. Yeah. Uh, and so I like actually just like type that out in the Hound Slack room to be like, here's what I'm thinking about as these responses roll in and just like kind of mm-hmm. reminding myself as much as the other people on the team who are going to be reading these things. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Pricing changes are always can, can be tricky, but mm-hmm. I feel like after the initial wave of it passes, I think it's just, you know, you're better off for it. So. Yeah, I think the payoff will be pretty pretty substantial. Like mm-hmm. right now, there's I'm basically the only person on Hound who works full time, and I'm not even really full time on Hound. And part of that is just that the Hound revenue doesn't support full time work. Yeah, and it would be awesome to get there. And I think this I think this alone might even do it if I haven't mm-hmm. you know misjudged everything. So uh, that would be a nice milestone to get to. Yep. And that's how we pitched the pricing uh, change. Honestly, in, in the in the email was like, by the way, the motivation for this is that we want to work on Hound more. And yeah, for it to be a viable product, we got to charge more. Right. In the name of sustainability and actually being able to keep the product around, it's you know kind of a necessity. So Totally. Yeah. Yep. So do you want it cheap and then to go away or more expensive and to stay and get better? Right. Right. Yeah. So it feels good to have that done. I'm sure I'm going to get some, some nasty responses that will hurt my feelings a little bit, but I'll try not to let it get to me. Yeah. What's up with you? Still working on onboarding our new um, developer who's working on uh, back-end mm-hmm. uh, engineering scaling stuff, mm-hmm. and that, that's going really well. He um, shipped his first pull request last week, so nice. woohoo, that's always our goal. Like When we hire someone new, we tell them, we, we say in our job description, like you will ship code in your first week, mm-hmm. and then towards the end of the week, we actually did it, and he's like, oh wow, I wasn't sure if that was actually uh, a real thing or mm-hmm. if it was just something you put in there, and we're like, yeah, well, it's mm. real. Yeah, I, that's a great. I think it's a really good goal, goal to have. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I would. It would worry me if you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I guess if you are like Twitter or something, and the world is so complex that you need to spend a week just like studying the existing state of the system. 
Right. I could see that being one thing, but for like anything beyond, at like less than tremendous scale, I would think a, a first week shipping is like a pretty good goal to have. Yeah. I think drip is getting pretty complex these days. Like, yep. and I forget that because I'm so I have such intimate knowledge of the system. So it you know it's always a good experience to like walk someone through the code base and and we did that exercise on our first day in the office together, and um, you know we spent probably three hours straight just kind of walking through the app and looking at a little bit of code that, under the covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I had totally planned on like, oh, we'll just breeze through the entire models directory and like get through everything <laughs> in this time period. It was like not even close. Yeah. So and I think, you know, he was probably a little bit like a little bit overwhelmed just, mm-hmm. you know, in seeing like all the all the different systems in there. But um yeah, I found still it's like best to get someone onboarded, especially someone who's a little bit more senior and has seen a Rails app or two, Yeah, you know, just like give them a high level overview and then try to find some very specific tasks that are bite-sized enough where you don't have to know how all the systems interact with each other, but maybe just one very specific one mm-hmm. and then just kind of turn them loose on it and let them kind of work through it and try to answer their own questions as much as possible. And that's kind of the best, best way we found for someone to get uh, up to speed so yeah i like that i found that for me coming up to speed on new apps i, I always want to start in the ui mm-hmm. like if i if i spend enough time in the ui i can usually make some pretty good guesses about what i'm going to find in the rest of the in in the models in, in the code itself sure but the reverse is much harder in my experience yeah yeah there's just so many pieces and little small objects you've built and things like that that it's just like it's hard to get a sense of what the system does to me from the code i'd much rather click around in it for a while Right. Yeah, that's the that's kind of the thing. Like the the better factored your code base is, the harder it is to follow it because you're like opening ten totally. files just to, just to see how one thing works. So yep, totally. That's the downside yeah. there. Right. We just we need to go back to those days where we put all the code in one file. Yeah. <laughs> Application yeah. rb and then it just runs. Yeah, a two thousand line login page. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We used to have one of those on Hittail. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Good I've, stuff. I've I've seen some stuff. I was thinking about doing a talk one time about bad code, and so I just, or I, and and so I was like collecting examples, and people will occasionally submit, uh, would throw stuff in like campfire at the time, and just be mm-hmm. like, check out this controller, mm-hmm. and they'd be like, here's a two thousand line action, <laughs> like one action. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, by the way, uh, if you or our listeners are hearing uh, a humming, we have some construction going on, so Tom's gonna do his best to remove it, but there might be some of it from my end. Mm. So. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. This is a tension that I feel. And this may, it may be that the answer to this, these questions are just that that's a fundamental tension and that's why we get paid the big bucks is because we manage this fundamental tension. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's the answer to a lot of development questions. So people are like, well, like just the, what we were just talking about, like putting all your code in one file makes it easy to like see the whole system. Splitting right. out your code into a million files makes it hard to see the whole system, but easy to see the pieces in isolation. Right. And it's like, which is better? It's like, well, you know, there's a thing somewhere in the middle, some-ish maybe, and you have to figure out where, where you should draw that line. And that's mm-hmm. not an easy question and it changes from app to app. And that's why this is partly an art and not a science. Right. Uh, and that's just a fundamental tension there. Yep. I think there's a, a similar thing in the product management side, which is we have FormKeep. It's chugging along. It's making about 10K a month. And it's not a complicated app. It's simple. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at the point where if we wanted to charge a lot more for it, we would need to provide more value than we do. And to provide more value than we do, we need to add more stuff to it. We need to do more things. Right. And that makes the app harder to work on, but it makes it potentially more valuable. Mm. And so 
that sort of attention is like simple is good. And some people actually prefer simple. Like I think there's like a nice spot for simplicity in applications, right. right? But then it becomes like, well, it's not like people, often when people cancel, they're like, well, like I had this form and it wasn't getting a lot of attention and like it's, you know, there's not much else going on. So why pay for it? And so part of it is just like the, the tension of complexity, but also like talking to customers, like asking customers what they want versus deciding yourself like what your vision is. That feels like another right. one of those like tugs where it's like I could, so like one of my thoughts is like, let me survey the best form keep customers and be like, how do we be more valuable to you? How do we do more? And mm-hmm. they'll answer some stuff, but like they're probably going to answer a few things. And it's like, I have to decide like, does this match our vision? Do we want to add these things? Do we want to increase the complexity? Yeah, it's a, it's tricky. Like we've, so drip from the onset, we, we had decided pretty firmly that we wanted to, to try to have an app that was valuable enough where we could charge at a minimum $49 a month. Like that mm-hmm. was kind of our, our baseline. Like what can we build that's valuable enough to get us there? So we definitely always had like in mind the idea of trying to make this product go further up market than maybe something like a hit tail that started at $9 a month. Mm-hmm. And I think we went through some definitely some growing pains in the early you know, first few months, first year even, uh, where, you know, we just had a very basic product. It was an opt-in widget and it could enroll you in a campaign, send follow-up emails. And that was like, you know, that was V1 of Drip. And we hit plateaus, you know, where we heard frequently that it just, there just wasn't enough there um, to justify the price. And so in that process, we did ultimately end up building out what turned into automation, which then turned into like, Drip becoming a full-blown marketing automation platform. Mm-hmm. I think it's not necessarily true that you know you have to add a lot more features in order for something to provide more value. It could be also an issue of positioning. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. like is is the marketing directed at the right audience of people yeah. in a certain budget range? Um, mm. You know, because you look at you look at a lot of like really expensive enterprise business business software, and a lot of times it's far less equipped than something that's built much nicer, but maybe positioned towards a a lower end segment of the market. Yeah, so, I love that. That's this is that's that's a great answer, and like that's to me this is like a classic developer fallacy that I just like yeah. walk right into, which is like to be more valuable, write more code. Right. It's like, are you sure that's the answer? Yeah. And sometimes it is, you know, I think there's, like you were saying at the beginning, there's a balance there, right? Mm -hmm. I think you, you definitely like need to have enough features to justify things, but sometimes it's a matter of like just targeting different use cases, different types of customers. And, and, And it's, it's not really at the end of the day about the features, right? It's about the value. Right. And so maybe you need the features to drive that value, but you, maybe it's the positioning. Maybe it's like telling them how to use it in a way that they can get more value from it. Right. Or attracting the kind of people that can get the kind of value from it that makes it worth more. Yeah, I remember a story from um, Patrick McKenzie, mm-hmm. who ran Appointment Reminder, mm-hmm. and that was basically a an app that helped you know small businesses schedule their appointments. Um, and so, like hair salons would use it, and other you know small service businesses like that. Mm-hmm. But he also had a, a tier that was like HIPAA compliant, and I'm pretty sure. Mm. I'm not sure exactly what was involved with getting HIPAA compliance, but I'm sure there was some paperwork to file and maybe some like, you know, special firewalls on your servers or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he had one tier that was HIPAA compliant. I think it was like 10 times more expensive than than the lower tiers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's basically the same exact functionality, but it just has this extra little thing that a certain segment of the market would be willing to pay 10 times more for just right. because, you know, it's compliant. So I always thought that is an interesting anecdote, like, you know, sometimes 
it's a matter of just figuring out what you need to be attractive to a, to a higher end segment of the market. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that the common thread here is understanding mm-hmm. of, of your customers because it, it dictates what to build, if anything, who to reach out to of your potential market people, how to yep. position yourself. And it all comes down to like, do you understand the customer and their needs and can you use that to do the right things? Right. Hmm. Yeah. And so a con to that is like, sometimes you have to look at the potential market you're going to serve and you have to ask yourself, do you want to do the work required to enter into that market? Yeah. So like for Drip, it was always a question of like, you know, we could sell into larger companies, but then you're talking an enterprise sales process that maybe lasts several months. You're on the phone with people, you're, you're cutting deals, you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're having to price things 10 times more expensive. So then you can discount at 80%. So you can still make your profit margin. And as a small bootstrapped company, we, we didn't really want that. Did, that wasn't attractive to us. Mm-hmm. So we knew that like we were capped at a certain level, we could still go further up market than, than even $49 a month. We could get we could get larger customers than that, but to actually get, you know, enterprise contracts at ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year or something like that mm-hmm. would be probably something that we wouldn't enjoy enough to be willing to right. to do it. You know? Yeah, I feel like we did sort of touch on this already, but one thing I worry about sometimes is deciding you're right versus not. So, like mm-hmm. dealing with customer feedback. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think this the stock answer to like, what do you do when customers tell you to do one thing and you want to do the other? Is like, well, you need to have a vision. And you need to decide what you want to do and, and make some smart choices, I guess. Right. That feels like another one of those tricky balancing acts where it's like, if you ask people what they want, they'll tell you lots of things. Right. And you might not want to do those things or they might actually be outright bad suggestions. Uh, and that feels like another one of those tricky things to deal with day to day. Yeah. Our process for taking in customer feedback mm-hmm. is always like, we always try to reposition our thinking around you know, what problem is the customer trying to solve with this feature request that they're asking for? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, customers are notoriously bad at being able to articulate how to actually build the feature that solves their problem because they're not, you know, they're not privy to all the knowledge that you have as the as the product manager, or the mm-hmm. owner of the product or whatever. So customers usually pitch things as feature requests. You know, I, I want Right. This setting added or this capability added to the product when really they're trying to say, like, I have this problem and I'm looking for a solution to it. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's probably step number one that we take is is trying to reframe it as like, what's the actual problem that the customer's having? Hmm. And and then we try to think of our own solution for it. And oftentimes it's different than what the customer is asking for. Sometimes there's an existing solution already there and just communicating that existing solution mm. is enough to to make that person you know to satisfy the customer or to convert them into a paying customer or whatever it may be mm. so sometimes it's just a matter of education and other times it's a matter of reframing it as like a, a problem that they're trying to solve and then looking for common threads among other customers which is which actually happens quite often um it doesn't happen as much now that drip is a more mature product i don't see it quite as often but mm-hmm. i remember like a year or two ago we would always get feature requests coming in through support channels and we would try to at least on a weekly basis to review what's coming in and try to distill it down in that way and looking for the problems people are having. Mm. And very often we would get three or four people who are proposing different feature requests, but all speaking to the same problem. Yeah. So then that that's when it became a no brainer. Like, okay, this is something we should probably add if there's that many people having the same problem. Mm, I like it. It's like a root cause analysis. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, the feature request is just the symptom of a problem. Exactly. Yeah. And like, don't treat that symptom necessarily. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like it. This is good. Yeah. You, you might've learned some things in your days of doing all this. <laughs> this is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So we also get requests coming in that are maybe outside of the boundaries of what we want drip to be. So I think this is kind of speaking to your concern of like, if you build everything customers want, is the product going to drift too far from your original vision? Mm-hmm. And sometimes customers guide you in the right way. I feel like, you know, like we got a lot of customers signaling that people needed automation and that ultimately led to basic rules and workflows and drip, which is like the core of the product now. So yeah. we can definitely like thank our customers for pushing us in that direction. Mm. But we also get customers who, you know, have been asking for certain features like like a full featured CRM built into Drip. And, you know, we've had a number of conversations about this. We've batted back and forth, like, are we going to go down this route of building a CRM or does that fall outside of the boundaries of what Drip is mm. best at? Mm-hmm. You know, because we don't want to become a junk drawer app, you know, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of the competitors we have kind of try to do everything. Yeah. And they end up doing everything poorly or mm-hmm. mildly adequate and we want to be like the best solution for this very specific thing which is marketing automation so do we build crm or not was a question that we batted around a lot and so far we've we've resisted doing it because it's basically a whole separate product and so we've kind of gone the route of like trying to build tighter integrations with crms and moving more in that direction mm-hmm. so you keep uh, coming back to this inflection point in Drip's mm-hmm. history about when you started adding the automation stuff. Mm-hmm. What was the first bit of that? Like, what was the first thing that I couldn't do and then could do once automation was added? So, you know, we had people bringing in subscribers through forms and mm-hmm. they were enrolling them in campaigns, which basically autoresponder sequences. Mm-hmm. And so that was great. You know, it allowed people to capture leads off their website and then send them educational content to nurture them. But what people wanted to do is after they were done with the email course, they wanted to move them into a list or some some way to categorize them as someone who's completed this campaign and is now ready to receive like general marketing emails. Mm-hmm. So it was like this concept of moving someone from one bucket to another. Mm-hmm. And so we explored like, building some setting on a campaign itself that would be like like allow you to chain two campaigns together mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. there was a lot of like very nuanced specific solutions that we were batting around for this mm-hmm. and then you know certain other people wanted to say like if someone submits a form and they've already received this one campaign then send them to another campaign mm-hmm. so then there's like some decision logic at the beginning mm-hmm. so then there's another point where we're like do we add a construct built you know, hard-coded directly onto a campaign that lets you choose between two different ones depending on some condition, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was things like that that were like, it just didn't, something did not feel right about bolting on this logic onto this campaign concept. Yeah. We felt like there was something bigger there. And it took us, I don't know, probably three or four months to actually start to use the words like, we need rules, we need automation rules, we need a rules engine. Like we didn't even have the right words for it. Mm. But we knew that there was like, there needed to be these things that glued together these other concepts in the app. And so it was definitely a gradual thing. It's not like overnight we immediately came to the conclusion that we needed automation rules and workflows. Like Mm -hmm. these things happen very gradually. Um, But I think it was just a matter of like, something offended our senses about about like building little one-off solutions to the problems and yeah. it ultimately like 
led to this broader concept. Interesting. What else do you remember about that time as being interesting? I mean, I think it was interesting how how much we resisted doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have these meetings, Rob and I, and we would just groan at like, oh, here's another request for this thing. Like, we, <laughs> we really didn't want to do it. I'm sure. Uh, I feel like I would have felt the exact same way. Like, oh my God, a rules engine? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, what are we trying to build here? I, I think at one point we even were questioning fundamentals of like customers wanted to they kept asking us, should I drop MailChimp and use Drip exclusively? You know, does Drip do everything mm-hmm. that MailChimp can do? And at the time, it couldn't. Mm-hmm. We had basic broadcast emails and we had follow-up sequences and forms, but there were some other things that MailChimp offered that we we didn't have parity on yet. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, we even had one conversation where we debated, do we pull email sending functionality out of Drip altogether huh. and just make it a way to capture leads and you know, dump them into a follow-up sequence. Mm-hmm. So that was like, that was an interesting thing. Like we even, we periodically try to like step way back and question fundamentals. Like, yeah, is this still true today? Like we, we assumed this was true a year ago. Is it still true today? I love that. I, lo- I love that idea of, of you groaning in meetings as like more features co- or more requests for the basically the same like automation stuff comes in. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful picture. It's often a good sign that there's something there. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you hear it once, you can groan. You hear it twice, you groan again. But after hearing it ten times, it's like, all right, all right, you fine. <laughs> we even we even have this custom emoji in our Slack room that's of Jerry Seinfeld making the face when he goes, all right. I don't know if you can picture that, but <laughs> uh-huh. right, like you got me. I'll have to do this. Yeah, huh. exactly. There's a Paul Graham essay about slogs. Are you familiar with this? Mm, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure this is a PG essay. It's about how a lot of the times people will not solve certain problems because it looks like a pain in the ass to get a mm-hmm. solution together. Yeah. Uh, and, but often like a lot of good stuff exists at the end of the slog. Right. Like if you can make that slog and then make it easy for other people, then it could be a good thing. Yeah. But I, so I can totally see at the start of the slog, you're like, oh man, I, we just, we don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like making a gamble. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a lot of effort and you're pretty sure it's going to pay off, but you, you need enough evidence to, totally. to be willing to commit. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of a good default attitude to have. I yeah. feel like as I've gotten further in my development career, I've come, this is not an original idea, but I've come more and more to believe that code is not an S- asset, it's a liability. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh God, we're going to make more code happen. Like right. this, this is worse for us. If we could have just as good a product with not as much code, it would be so much better. And so like every time we start writing more code, it's like this, things are getting worse, just so you know. Yeah. This liability column is growing over here. Yeah, I think we all get like battle hardened over time. Like you start to, and, and this is something as a product manager, you have to resist because it's still important to take in customer feedback and yep. feature requests and things like that. But you do gradually build up like a resistance to wanting to add more features. It's like, haven't we built enough yet? <laughs> it's like, yeah, probably not, you know, but you do you kind of build up this thick skin where you're like, it, it takes a lot nowadays for someone to ask for a feature and we build it right away because, because we, one, the product is pretty mature and two, it's like, now you have to support this feature for many more customers than you had to back if this was two years ago and we were building this feature, we only had to support it for 50 customers, you mm-hmm. know? So you build up a little bit of inertia and like trying to fight against that is probably a good default mode, like recognizing that you're going to naturally be really resistant to new features now. So try to be mindful of that and, you know, try extra hard to, to not let that 
be the deciding factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, I think there were two uh, pretty notable things that happened after uh, the lead pages acquisition got announced, mm. which was mm-hmm. the $1 plan. You'd have like a $1 like starter type plan. Yep. And also doubling the, I think it was doubling the affiliate commissions. Yeah. Somehow 30, I ended up on an, the affiliate list. I, mm. I, I haven't sent any referrals, but somehow I am apparently on that list. I don't know why. Do you have a drip account? I do. Okay. So I think every drip customer is automatically an affiliate. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm curious uh, how those are going. They're, uh, they're going well. Growth has really picked up with the $1 plan. And mm. so, yeah, a lot of trials uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, quite a bit of activity. Uh, also, I'm seeing from from affiliates who are, you know, just spreading the word about Drip. So mm-hmm. it's really good to see. You know, I feel like that was always a, a challenge, like getting heard amongst the noise because there's a lot of, mm. you know, it's a crowded space. There's a lot of different options out there for marketing automation. And so, you know, it really helps having affiliates. I know it's been, that's been a really successful strategy for, for lead pages over their history is mm. having, having a strong base of affiliates who are kind of championing the, the product. So yeah, it's been, it's been good to see. And I think it's still pretty early to tell like long-term results, but so far things look good. That's cool. More trial, yeah. more trials than usual. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I will say, like, uh, reading the affiliate emails, whoever's writing them is doing a nice job of mm-hmm. making it seem very easy to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's your link. All you got to do is throw your link in a thing. Here are, like, five bullet points you might want to mention. Like, it's yeah. it's like, here's roughly a blog post that you can just sort of shape into your own. And, like, ideally, you would do more than that. But it's the, the raw materials are definitely provided. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like to-do item. Write a blog post from scratch about why you might want to choose Drip. It's more like... I have lots and lots of feeder ideas here that right. I can kind of massage uh, or use as inspiration. Yeah. They've mastered the art, I think, of, mm. of you know, helping affiliates be successful. And, you know, it's something that we, we obviously would have loved to have a whole affiliate program like this before with, with this level of commission. It's something that we would have struggled to do, I think, as, a, as an independent bootstrapped company because you know, 30% is a, a pretty good chunk, but mm-hmm. so from like a cash flow issue, you're yeah. saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's one of those things that having more resources behind you, this is one of those, one of those benefits for sure. Oh, okay. So like maybe it's at the higher commissions, it's still profitable, but it's just a, more of a strain on cash flow. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering yeah. like, if it's not profitable for, why is it now? But it's actually just a question of like time to payback kind of thing. Yeah. That's basically it. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, it's nice that that's working out. Yeah, yeah. I've heard cool. I heard Rob on I think Bootstrap Web, which is another uh, which a podcast I enjoy, and he was mm-hmm. he also seemed very he was basically reporting that things are good. It's it's been it's been a positive experience. Yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah, and they're they've got I mean the lead pages marketing team is among the best in the industry, and I you know I'm not just saying that because I because I work there now. <laughs> yeah, um, you know watching watching them they're they're a well oiled machine. Yeah, it's really fun to watch, and Zach our head of growth on the drip team has been getting, you know, kind of integrated into their, their team and he's heading up content on the drip blog still. And, you know, it's, it's just really great to see him learning from the team and seeing everything that they're able to, to crank out. It's really totally. cool. Yeah. I listened to their, they had some, they had a podcast that I was listening to for a while mm-hmm. uh, that was enjoyable. I think it was like seven minute episode type things. Hmm. Uh, and the format was almost, was basically like the, the, every episode title was like how this person achieved this numeric result 
in this time frame. <laughs> like they're basically all that. Yeah. Uh, and it's always ridiculous numbers. Yeah. It's like how changing one word improved Brian whatever's email conversion whatever by two million percent. Right. And it's like, <laughs> all right, this is a six minute episode. I can probably <laughs> like yeah. this might be worth a listen. Yeah. Sure. And there's like hundreds of those. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's been my only interaction with them, but it's been positive. Yeah. What else is up with you? What's going on with uh, in the Formkeep world aside from uh, pricing changes? I have not been touching the Formkeep world. Okay. Um, I've just been in Hound world. Okay. Okay. I did a back and forth for a little while. So I I feel conflicted because you and I talked about um, different pricing models for Hound the other day. Mm -hmm. And the more I thought about it, the more I like a per seat type pricing model for Hound. Mm -hmm. But I felt constrained by resources and time right so there's sort of a model that i that i like which is unique pull requesters per month for hound Mm -hmm. so not quite per seat it's not like everyone in your organization it's just the number of people that open a pull request right uh, on any of your repos and i like that but in my mind i was imagining basically building a billing system for this and i was like i can't use stripe subscriptions anymore I need to come up with a custom charge amount every month. Yeah. And I was just like, I know. I just, <laughs> I, I think this is a really good model, but like if someone would build it for, if like it didn't cost anything to build it, I would do it. Right. But I was just imagining this sort of like kind of nightmare of payment code. Yeah. And you could maybe like, there's certain clever things you could do, maybe like put somebody on a subscription and then figure out what the discount is based on who's not using it. And it just like, I just, this it felt like a perfect is the enemy of good moment where i just like kept like this this is actually why it took me so long to announce the hound pricing fully was because i was like Mm -hmm. maybe i was like i do still like this model i think there's some like really good strengths to it and Mm -hmm. i just kept thinking about it thinking about it and talking about it with people and it was like this i I do think it is actually probably a better model but just is just too much complexity yeah bill and something i also to keep in mind is like transparency to the to the user like how yeah. easy is it for the customer to understand for why sure. they're being billed what they're being billed and do they feel like it's fair mm-hmm. yeah like when you told me about that on the other episode the pull requester model it sounded like clever and like perhaps the most correct to align with, <laughs> with value uh-huh. but it sounded overly complex yeah, you know? yeah. and um, i actually have an interesting billing pricing anecdote oh, yeah. to share please so we had this issue where um so Drip's billing is kind of based on there are certain tiers based on your subscriber count in your in, in your account. And these tiers basically go infinitely higher based on the number of subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few published on the website, but they just keep going up beyond there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we auto adjust you as soon as you uh, surpass your plan limits. And we you know inform the customer so that everyone knows what's going on. And we follow the model of high watermark billing, which is kind of what MailChimp does, and I think it's a pretty standard industry practice, Mm -hmm. which is like if you peak out at, uh, say, 50,000 subscribers in your account, and then you go and you delete a bunch of subscribers and you drop down to Mm 20,000, then, you know, basically your high watermark for that billing period is Mm 50,000. And we bill you accordingly, you know, for that plan. And then right after billing runs, we we reevaluate, we auto adjust you down to whatever currently fits your usage. Mm -hmm. And so we, so that's been in place for a long time now. Um, but we we ran into this problem where certain people were doing things. Not, I wouldn't say necessarily abusive, but just their usage pattern was such that they were adding subscribers into their drip accounts 
sending an email or two in the span of a day and then they were basically done with those subscribers. Like they knew they were never going to email them again. Mm. So then they were deleting them. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we were getting like a lot of a high volume of email sent, but a relatively low subscriber count. Mm. So basically the high watermark was being captured once a day. And so if, if between auto adjustment times, Mm. basically in that 24 hour span, if someone spiked way up and then dropped way down, they were not getting high watermarked. If that makes sense. Yep. So like we had this discussion of like, how do we, how do we change billing so that that doesn't happen, you know, because it's sort of skirting around the rules, not really in a malicious way, but it, but it is, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's, there actually are hard costs there. Like if people are sending emails and then removing them, like that is, you know, that's costing us each time an email is sent. So we, there were like a number of things we debated around and we arrived at like, if you add a subscriber on a given day and you delete them in that day, We'll always bill you for at least one day's worth of that subscriber. So we like look in the last 24 hours and we include any deleted subscribers from mm. that day mm. in your subscriber count so that it just kind of closes that loophole. Uh-huh. But we had like five other alternative, maybe not five, but maybe three other alternative ways that we could have approached this. Mm-hmm. And I won't, I won't bore the audience with the details, but like it basically boiled down to like, we had a solution that was perhaps even more perfect than the one we arrived at, uh-huh. but it was going to be so confusing and convoluted to actually explain to the customer. Like we could imagine getting an e- a support email saying, I just got auto adjusted to this plan based on this usage, but that doesn't match my subscriber count. So right. what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then trying to like tell support how to explain, yep. you know, what, why they're on that plan well because they had this many unsubscribed subscribers and they deleted those and you know like mm-hmm. it would have been a nightmare so sometimes it's like simplicity wins you know yeah totally i've i've started to have this voice in my head which is like just use tiers like people are expecting like don't mm-hmm. don't innovate on the pricing model too much it's yeah. you're not as clever as you think you are and like that like even if i even if i could snap my fingers and have that code written you're like the, the ongoing support requests of like wait what's going on like why is it this way like it's different every month are you kidding me like just sounded right. like oh god this is this one end actually yeah yeah that idea of like technically correct but impossible to explain to customers reminds me <laughs> of stripes proration mm. have you have you met, have you had that have you experienced this no is it like for their so well, explain explain I'm going to try to give you the one minute explanation and yeah. you'll see, you, you can try to feel my pain. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say you're on a plan that's a hundred dollars a month right. and halfway through the month you switch your plan. So you've basically gotten $50 so far and then you owe me $50 for the next month. So like, let's, let's say you go to a, a, uh, lower plan that's cheaper, but so Stripe wants to switch your plan and do what's technically correct and bill you for half the month at the old plan and half the month at the new plan. Right. So now you owe me 50 for the start of the month and then whatever, then the new, like 25 for the rest of the month. But rather than deal with any of that, Stripe wants to keep your billing date the same. So they will like issue you a credit for the $50 that you didn't use and issue you a charge for the $25 that you're going to use. Yes. And then it's going to apply those to your next payment that, so it'll affect your like upcoming month's payment. Yes. And so it's like, when you think about it, like once I figured out, once I understood how it worked, I was like, yes, that's totally correct. You're charging them, you know, exactly correctly. But like every time this happens, people email me and they're like, why is, because like you'll, you'll see a thing where it's like, I changed my plan and then my next month, my bill is like, is higher than the new plan. Yes. And it's like, yes. And I, <laughs> I actually have like written up like a, a, like a response to this so many times I have it like saved in intercom. And like, I've actually even thought of making a, uh, like an FAQ section, which is just like, 
here's how it works. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I have encountered that. So uh-huh. I used Stripe subscriptions for CodeTree. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the Stripe platform is great. Their API is awesome. Mm-hmm. So I you know, have very few complaints about that. But my gosh, I spent so much time um, just yeah. trying to figure out the, the nuances of... And it gets really tricky when someone has prorations and then they... Uh, well, if they pl- change their plan multiple times in a month, right? Then that's even really, worse. Like we get got in a situation where someone would like change their plan and then minutes later be like, "Oh, never mind. I was just testing out plan changing," and then go back down, and it was like, right, exactly. Yep, you're in for pain. Yeah, yeah. And so. it, and to be fair, like you can disable proration. Like you can just say like, "Don't prorate." Right. Um, right. And it's not as fair, but it is simpler. So like, it's, yeah, it's funny. There are times where it's like being correct is costing us more. Let's just let's be not correct and right. maybe take a hit or maybe the customer takes a hit depending on if they're upgrading or downgrading. But like this will maybe save us some time. Yeah. yeah. I think there's just there's fundamental complexity there. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't blame them for that trickiness. Right. You know, it's like this is it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've wrestled with Comcast multiple times before about uh prorations on my comcast bill and uh, yeah <laughs> sometimes it's not even worth it like you just yeah that does not sound fun <laughs> yeah i have a fairly high threshold for like there's a dollar amount below which like i just i cannot be bothered to deal with this even if it's wrong yeah and that's probably what they're banking on I, they probably have I've, a very a sophisticated uh, machine learning algorithm to figure out what that number is for everyone i i'm sure they do like one time so this was I learned my lesson on this. I'm never, I'm never calling Comcast over a, as small of an amount as I was calling about. But yeah. I was on the phone with somebody. I'm pretty sure they were overseas and they had a calculator out. And she was literally ca- like <laughs> manually pro- calculating the proration and discovered like a $25 discrepancy or something. Right. But it was, yeah. Yeah. I was saying to my friend Joe the other day, like, I want to start issuing people invoices for my time. (laughs) So it's like, I'd like that proration. And also, uh, I'm going to be sending you an invoice for an hour of my time at $500 an hour, which is my standard rate for dealing with phone support. Right. (laughs) This is how I feel about like when people, people will sometimes email FormKeep and be like, hi, I need you to enter this like data protection agreement. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, uh, that's not a thing I'm going to do. Because I mean, I I feel like I want to, I should just have a price for that. Yeah. Because some people will probably just pay it. Generally, right. I'm just kind of like, we can't do this for you, sorry. But right. I could figure out time-wise and lawyer-wise and all that what's what's worth it to us. Mm-hmm. I assume you have something like that for Drip? Well, we don't have a formal thing in place, but generally, like, if someone wants, like, modified terms of service or something like that, I mm. think we've we've handled it on a case-by-case basis, but generally it's, like, it's not worth it, you yeah. know? Yeah, I've, ex- I've explained that, had to explain that a few times. Yeah. I've had, like, people ask me to enter an agreement with their customers, Mm-hmm. like their customers are going to use FormKeep. And it's just like, there's just no, like, I would have to charge you like $10,000 for this conversation to like be worth it. Cause like, I'm going to have to get our lawyers involved and their lawyers. And I just like, this is a nightmare. Right. It's like, we're not sending a shuttle to space here. Like we're <laughs> right. co- collecting leads on a website. <laughs> yeah. Like these are email addresses. Like I realize you want them to not get like distributed to the world if we get hacked or something, but right. we're, we're already doing your, our best. I promise. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they just got to trust you. Yeah, exactly. This feels like a pretty good stopping point. Cool. Yeah. It's good talking to you. Yeah. Good talk. Super helpful stuff, by the way, that advice on like positioning and like reframing to like ask about the problem and all that. Yeah. That, good. Was, that was great. Cool. I wrote some stuff down. I took notes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, same time next week. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Cool. 
Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Chickabwamwam Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 211. Thanks for listening.